0: Thank you sir. Uh, as, as Sir was saying that, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, for people like us, who are professional researchers and academics, uh, publication is something which is uh, very important. And we all know the phrase that in academics, either you publish or perish. So, but, but increasingly, you know, as, especially for young researchers like us, you know, one of the questions which keeps coming is ethics in terms of publication while there are issues related to legalities. Uh, ethics always uh, comes into the picture and there are times when we find it difficult to actually understand as to what you know, comprise unethical you know, uh, uh, behavior or unethical practices in terms of publications. Uh, we have today uh, San- Ms. Sandeep Kaur, who is an uh, you know, uh, editor with the uh, Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, has been with Palgrave for over three years, but she has been associated with the publication industry for over 10 years. And she has worked with uh, you know, more than uh, a, n- a number of reputed uh, public- publication houses uh, in Delhi. And uh, I remember I had met her first time. Uh, sometime in uh, you know 2014, 15 in Sage, I guess. Uh, so uh, good to know you, uh, Sandeep. Yes. And, uh, uh, you <laughs> thank now. you. Uh, I welcome you all. so Please, Sandeep, over to you.
1: Thank you so much. So um, thank you so much for the introduction. So today um, I'm going to talk about publication ethics. I'm Sandeep Kaur. I'm an editor with Palgrave Macmillan. So before starting with the main topic, uh, please allow me to introduce my publication house as well. That is Palgrave Macmillan. So if we can go to the first slide, Nudasir. Yes. Thank you. So Palgrave Macmillan, it's an uh, imprint under Springer Nature, but Palgrave Macmillan has its own rich history. We have 175 years old publication house, and we are known for our reputed and flourishing and growing um, portfolio in humanities and social sciences. And Palgrave, we publish wide variety of book categories, starting from monographs, that is authored volumes, to edited volumes, handbooks, textbooks, MRWs, and we even have a very special category, Palgrave Pivots. So uh, we're very well known in the international publishing sector. So um, talking about my work, I commission scholarly research work in wide, wider, very wide subject field, starting from... Uh, business and management, to economics and finance, to politics and international relations. And I cover um, geogra- wider geographical area, South Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. So I have authors based in all these geographical areas. So if, just to and blow my trumpet, if, you are a, if you're an author looking forward to um, publish your work in these subject fields and from these geographical areas, do get in touch with me. Feel free to get in touch with me. So this is just a brief introduction to Palgrave and the work I do with Palgrave Macmillan. So I'll start with the main topic now, uh, publication ethics, um, the next slide. So the topic that we are discussing today is very crucial as uh, Professor Kumaraswam mentioned, as Mudasir mentioned. So I'm sure all the attendees that are here with us today, whether they have published a journal article or whether they they are publishing a book, they must have encountered some kind of ethical issues in their publishing publishing career, or they must have had some kind of discussions related to publication ethics. Now, if we had to start with very basic definition of ethics, given by Charlotte, she is a former vice chair of COPE. COPE is Committee on Publication Ethics and Springer Nature is a member of COPE. So, if we go by the best basic definition, a publication ethics is a set of common rules among authors, editors, reviewers, and publishers to protect integrity of the scientific record. This is the very basic definition. As definition says, all of us are responsible to maintain highest pot- pot- highest possible ethical standards. You, as an author, um, as a reviewer, as a book editor, or even a journal article author or us as a publisher or as a as in commissioning editors or even production editors it becomes our collective responsibility to bring out a truthful factually correct and ethical piece of work because we are answerable and we have a responsibility towards our readers those readers trust the work that uh, that we are publishing trust the work that you are writing and they will be doing further I'll say further discussions, or they'll, they're trusting that published work, and and be, and they, they, they base their technically they t- base their judgment on that published work. So it becomes our collective responsibility to be ethical while uh, doing our research work, while publishing a research work. Now, in this process, uh, in this presentation, I'll uh, talk about each very common ethical dilemmas that we generally encounter and how you can avoid falling into those ethical pitfalls. Uh, we can go to the next slide. So these are the issues, individual issues that I'm going to discuss, authorship issues. I'll try to define that who exactly is the author of the work and who should not be the author of the work. Then we have undeclared competing interest and how it affects your work and whether it affects your work or not. Then obviously we have plagiarism. We have text recycling. It is also known as self-plagiarism. Then we have duplicate and re- redundant publications. In this one, I'll also discuss what are the exceptions to duplicate publications. Then we have data manipulation and image manipulation. I'll be taking each issue separately and discussing it. <clears throat> um, next slide, please. Thank you, sir. So, uh, okay, this one is quite complicated. How you define that who is the author of the work. Now, if you want a very uh, universally accepted uh, definition or a guideline of who is an author, you can refer to this um, particular website, ICMJE's website, which is International Committee of Medical Journal Editors. I have given a link there. So they have given a very elaborate definition that what defines an author. And uh, it's 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 universally accepted by academia. So if I have to sub, uh, put it into this slide and to tell you that how you can define and how you become an author of the work, so first of all, uh, it's who has conceptualized the idea in uh, in his or her brain, and that person after conceptualizing the um, the idea, he or she starts at, at start acquisition of data and interpretation of that data proactively. And after conceptualizing, collecting data, that person starts drafting the manuscript. It can be one person, it can be a group of people, even two co-authors or three co-authors. So they draft the manuscript and they are are also proactively involved in revising the manuscript if required. So these people have um, proactively collected data, even proactively uh, mm, collected literature that they're going to review in their work. And then uh, they're writing the manuscript proactively so after writing it down this is the person the person who is responsible for giving final approval that will be published final approval to the version that will be published and this person takes public responsibility of the work so this person has agreed to be held to be held accountable for the work or any kind of issue that is related to the work pre-publication and post-publication also. So in post-publication, if there are queries, if it furthers, if it leads to further debates or further discussions, the work that you have published. So this particular person, he agrees to be held accountable. So this is how you define in broader terms the authorship of the work. Now, interestingly, I'll discuss who should not be the author of the work in the next slide. <clears throat> Um, can we get to the next slide, please? Thank you. So now who should not be an author of the work? Say uh, somebody has really helped you in acquiring fundings for the, your work. So this person ha- has helped you in getting funds that you needed to do the field research work without which your book or your journal article might not have been possible. Or this person has uh, helped you in getting funds to hire a research assistant. I'm sure you feel indebted to the person. You think you owe to the person, but you cannot gift an authorship to that person. It, it doesn't. That is totally unethical. The most you can do for that person is to acknowledge the person in acknowledgement section. And if you want, you can de- dedicate a whole paragraph to that person. But you definitely cannot gift an authorship. That is unethical. And the second one is, um, so there will be a group of people who have helped you in collection of data. So they might have done uh, field survey with you uh, actively, or they might have helped you in uh, locating literature for literature review. So, but it's you who has interpreted the data, who has uh, drawn conclusion from that data or that from field survey, or who has done the literature review. So those people, I mean, they have been helpful to you, but they, they do not become the author of the work the last one is general supervision now this one becomes a little bit tricky when it comes to phd dissertation converting into a book so um, so it, uh, uh, when we receive such a case in which the author uh, supervisor has been proactive with the with uh, the uh, with the student and that phd th- uh, dissertation is um, has, is credible enough to get published as a book. So we generally take it case to case basis. So how actively involved the supervisor has been with the uh, with the with the work. So, but if the some person has only supervised your work or has um, directed you in certain way or has helped you with Viva, again that person can uh, does not become an author of your work. So again, there's a very distinct. Um, so anybody who's who helped you with the work. Or whom you feel you know you kind of owe that, owe your work that you that without that person, this work might not have been possible. You can write a dedication to them, you can acknowledge them in the acknowledgement section, but you cannot make them an author of your or co-author of your work. Now, here again, if you're um, acknowledging someone in the acknowledgement section, even the person or the institute, whoever you are you are acknowledging, that institute and the author, both of them should be aware that they are being acknowledged or they are being mentioned in the work. So technically it's also about uh, taking consent and permission to be, to acknowledge the person. So we have covered that how we define authorship and who the person or somebody who cannot be an author of the work. So if we move to the next slide, we'll discuss a competing interest. Okay, what is a competing interest? Competing interest is anything that could influence or be perceived to influence the interpretation of data and the way you present your information, or your conclusion of the of your article, if there's anything that you know um, that is a chance of influencing or kind of making you partial about uh, the uh, about the data that you're presenting, that becomes a competing interest. So competing interest can be financial; it can be non-financial. I've given examples of these in the next slide. Madam, <clears throat> can we go to the next slide? Thank you. So the financial competing interest, obviously, you are receiving some kind of fees or some kind of funding or you're holding a patent or even um, say you are you are drawing an example, you're drawing some, drawing some kind of conclusion and uh, you have certain kind of stake in that particular industry. I'll give you a very, very simple example of financial competing interest. For example, a researcher is writing a paper reporting that there are no adverse effects of smoking on fertility. She has drawn this conclusion from the data that she has collected. Now it comes to light that her husband works in the cigarette industry. So that right there is a competing interest. Such kind of competing interest can be non-financial also. To give you an example, say for example, you as a peer reviewer receive a manuscript to review. Now, um, you know the author of the manuscript, personally, and you know um, the institute he or she is affiliated to. Now, Your knowing the author personally and your uh, affiliation to the institute. If it affects your feedback, if it affects your judgment regarding the um, manuscript, that right there is competing interest. Now what you can do in um, in the case of competing interest, interest, first of all, always declare the competing interest to the publisher. It doesn't mean no, uh, it doesn't mean that your work will not get published or your work might get rejected i mean like for example in the case of financial example i gave it definitely will lead to uh, greater scrutiny of the of your uh, interpretation of data or the or the kind of conclu- conclusion that you have drawn from the work but it it does not it doesn't mean that your work will not get published always declare the competing interest because not declaring it right away and if it comes to light later on then you will have a bigger problem <laughs> And then your um, uh, your chapter or your article might get rejected or there might be detraction of the work. So always declare the competing interest as soon as you're aware of it. <laughs> so the next one um, we're gonna talk about is duplicate publication. Um, this is next slide, please. Thank you. So there are two kinds of duplication, duplicate publications that we're going to talk about. The first one is related to manuscript. The second one is related to content. Now the manuscript one is very common. I encounter it very frequently, especially in the case of young scholars or or first-time authors. I understand you know they really want to get published as soon as possible, and they are very excited about it. Now what they do is is um, basically the first uh, case of duplicate duplicate publication is submitting your manuscript to multiple publishers at the same time without declaring it. That is totally unethical. I do receive such cases on and off. So uh, see, you need to understand that it leads to lo- uh, lots of wastage of resources and time. I'll tell you what happens when I receive a book proposal from you. I've received a book proposal. I'll be analyzing that book proposal at my end. If it is worthy of publication, then I'll be sending it to peer reviewers minimum of two minimum of two peer reviewers they're also investing their time and their resources to analyze the manuscript now they'll have a long feedback and they'll send the feedback to me i'll analyze the feedback also before giving it back to you so you can see lots of people have invested lots of time and resources in your manuscript and if you are submitting it to multiple publishers at the same time there's so much of wastage of resources and time so here say and the clear thing is, if you think a particular publisher is taking too much time in analyzing your work, just write a single email to them telling, you know, uh, I was expecting a shorter timeline. Uh, I would like to withdraw my publication because uh, I'm in hurry to publish it or whatever is the reason. So and I would like to submit to some other publisher. You know, in that case, you are not bound by the publisher with any legal uh, contract. And also it's the most responsible and respectable thing to do. And... Honestly speaking, it would also save your relationship with the publisher. So never ever submit your manuscripts to multiple publishers. You know, in in journal, in in the case of journal articles, it might even lead to some uh, publication because the journal is a speedy pub journal, so they might just publish your article. So then there will be duplicate duplicate publications of your work. And if it comes to like your uh, article, and in extreme cases it might lead to back blacklisting of the author. So be patient. try eat one publisher at one time. Okay, the second one about the content of manuscript. Now here you need to keep in mind uh, I'll, I'll start with an example. say for example, you have um, published a journal article in a journal. Now you want to expand this journal article as a chapter in a book. Now the ethical way to do it is you need to go back to your journal publisher, and obtain permission. And then you come back to your main main chapter and give due credit to the previous publisher. You cannot, just because it's your journal article, you cannot just expand it as a chapter without uh, taking proper copyright permissions. So this is the exception to duplicate publication. You can have a duplicate publication, but uh, the one thing is it should be an expansion. It should be kind of, it furthers the debate or furthers the point that you uh, making in your article and also all the due permissions should have been taken to avoid duplicate publication. So as I mentioned, it wastes the times and resources and in extreme cases, it leads to rejection and retraction of the work. Okay, after this is data fabrication, falsification. Fabrication is making up the data, falsification is manipulating the data or omitting certain datas or data or results. I really hope and I, that I do not need to explain why data manipulation is unethical and why you should not do it. So instead, I'll explain how we deal with data manipulation. As I told you, Springer Nature is a member of COPE guidelines. So as editors, if something is highlighted to us, an article is highlighted to us that might have a case of data manipulation, then we ask for a second review. We ask for a second opinion from a second reviewer and if the second reviewer also comes back saying that yes there's a chance of data manipulation in this particular article or in this particular chapter then we give in authors give authors a chance to explain themselves you know there there might be a case that he or she is not able has not been able to explain the work properly or explain the conclusion properly so it might look it might be looking like the data has been manipulated so don't worry we always give authors and cope authors to chance to explain and even cope kind of you know always recommend that go back to the author, give them a chance to explain. But in some cases, if it is required, we also involve affiliated institution in the whole discussion. So as again, in extreme cases, if the author is not able to prove that data has not been fabricated, it will lead to rejection or retraction of the work. So the second kind of uh, manipulation is happens with images. Now, this one is very important because this is very frequent with most of the authors in any field, in the field of politics or in the field of international relations or economics or business management. So basically, you cannot use an image you have taken from a public source for illustrative purposes. It should, you should only use those images which are adding to the discourse of your work. So, and even if you are um, taking any, kind, see image here doesn't mean only an image. Image here here comprises uh, figures, photographs or maps or any other illustrations. No matter from where you are taking them, you'll have to give a proper source and if required, and in most of the cases it will require, you will have to obtain permissions. Take it from me because I, I'll have to go back to authors again and again again and tell them, any kind of figure or any kind of image you are using, uh, taking from the internet, because I understand these days it's very easy to, you know, have access to all kinds of images, all kinds of photographs. Any image or photograph or map you are taking from a source, it, it comes with a copyright. So what you need to do is you need to tro- uh, you know trace back the source, and you need to obtain permissions. Always, always trace back. So, but if you are using a, if you re But I generally recommend my authors is if you can go for an alternative image or some some other alternative and if you can, you know, do without a particular image or particular photo in your work, try to go without it. Because in many cases, it is not easy to obtain permissions or even if you obtain a permission, it will come with lots of conditions. So always try to obtain permission or... I'll recommend first of all, if you think you're not clear about it, check with your publisher. Always go and talk to your editor about it. Now in image manipulation, but if you're using say original data or and if you're using particular image only to illustrate a point, again, you'll have to give a source, you'll have to obtain permission, but you need to explain that what kind of point you're illustrating there. So this is the case of image manipulation. And what you need to do here is trace, trace back the source and obtain permissions. So these are the two kinds of manipulations that we have discussed today. Uh, The next one that we can discuss is plagiarism. So I think this is the most dreaded word in the publishing industry. Plagiarism is duplication of text or figures or even tables from someone else's work. So there are three types of plagiarism that we generally encounter. First is verbatim. As um, Professor Kumaraswamy was talking in the very beginning, just taking the taking the work as it is, copying text as it is, without giving any attribution. The second one is patch writing or mosaic plagiarism. Now, honestly speaking, this one is much more common than we would like to admit. It generally means you're copying the text or portions of text from a particular work. You are changing the words with synonyms, or you are kind of changing the sentences here and there, but you're copying the text and you are not even giving attribution, that is citation on reference. This is a clear case of plagiarism. It's also called mosaic plagiarism, because if you run an article like this through anti-plagiarism software, it generally comes back all colorful. So the, the whole uh, paragraph will be highlighted in pink, telling you this particular p- paragraph is from this published source. Then the whole next paragraph will be in purple color, telling you this is from this source. And in that, uh, like this, the whole article will be in colors, in color, it will be all colorful. So that is a clear case of plagiarism. And trust me, uh, anti-plagiarism software, they always catch, no matter how you change the words or sentences, they'll get to know. So the third one is inappropriate paraphrasing. Now this one is very interesting. Here you have taken text from a source, but you have given citation and reference at the end of the paragraph. But instead of analyzing what you are trying to say here, or instead of analyzing what the source is saying, you have just picked up the paragraph and you have paraphrased it. For example, you have changed the voice of the sentence from active to passive or passive to active. Again, you have made the compounds and changed the compound sentences to simple sentences. You have not analyzed it, you just copied it. So giving a citation there does not make it okay. It's again a case of plagiarism. So how you can avoid plagiarism? Um, if you can go to the next slide avoiding a the, the golden rule to avoid plagiarism is if you reproduce or paraphrase anything anything means text figures tables data anything make sure the source is clearly acknowledged with proper citation and reference but if you are reproducing something it should be put in quotation marks so it uh, even in for the quotation mark that i would like to mention here uh, you cannot you should be aware that how much you can take from a published source and put in quotation marks. For example, you are um, using, say, a journal article, five-page long journal article as your source. Now, from five-page um, five-page long article, you cannot take the two pages and put it in, put it in quotes in your work. That's unethical. So, what I generally recommend my authors to do here is to make them more aware about it. Try and go to the website of the source. Um, to give you an example um for example are the, the, government websites most of the government websites in fact they allow you to use data as much as you want if you give them proper attribution so technically if you say um you're analyzing something and you are taking data and you analyze the data in a table form you can always write as a source you know author's analysis of data taken from this government website so th- you are free to use that one But in other cases, for example, in the case of UN website or say, for example, WHO website. So these websites, they allow you to use data for non-commercial purposes. Your book or your journal article, you will be paid for that book or you will be paid for the journal article. So that becomes a commercial entity right there. Now for commercial entities, these kind of websites, these international organizations, they have a limit that how much you can take. For example, um, say WHO website might say that you can take one figure from this particular source, one table, and you can quote up to 500 words. If your um, reproduction is well within limit, then obviously you can just go ahead and give proper citation and reference and you're done. But if your um, reproduction, or if you're taking more data than that, then you will have to obtain permissions for it and generally you know it's uh, uh, it's written on their website how you can obtain permissions so this is the second case the third one is again i'll be repeating myself here if you're reproducing any figure reproducing any table any photo any map any illustration always give source and always take permissions anything that is available on the internet These days, it's very easy to have access to everything on internet. They all, everything comes with a copyright attached to it. So always obtain permission. I'll give you an examples. Um, Say you want to take a photo, uh, you are writing about a political issue and you are referring to an article on Al Jazeera website. For example, there's an international news website. Now, any photo that you take from Al Jazeera website, it comes with a copyright. You cannot just reproduce it. You'll have to go back and take permissions. But for websites like for international news websites like Al Jazeera, even for most of your um, national news websites, it becomes very difficult to go back and obtain permission because or it will be very cumbersome. So try to have an alternative or try to think, do you really want to reproduce that particular photo in your work? Or you can go without it. And also try to obtain permission before submitting your final I'll say final draft to the publisher because it will save you lots of time. It will save your production time. So, again, I'll say be honest, be very honest that how much you are reproducing and how much you are paraphrasing, and try to analyze the work instead of um, paraphrasing and use logic. Use logic means uh, provide source, trace back the source, and see how much you can actually take, and always obtain permissions now we are in the last one, text recycling or self-plagiarism. Now the text recycling occurs when sections of the same text appear in more than one of an author's own publication. And that this usually without any attribution. We use the term in publishing sector, the text recycling to kind of differentiate it from the actual plagiarism, but COPE does not make that distinction. For COPE, it's a clear case of plagiarism. Now here I advise my authors that the work that you have published with, uh, maybe in journal, um, uh, in journal or maybe a book that you have published, treat that work as you would treat the work of the other authors. Give yourself attribution also, and if you are reproducing something, as I mentioned in the uh, duplicate publication slide, try to take permissions. Try, I mean, you have to take permissions. Sorry, so give yourself attribution also. And Again, the same logic applies here also. So to avoid self-plagiarism, treat the work that you have published as a published work. So it also kind of, um, you owe an attribution to that work also, and you will have to take permission from the previous publisher also. So I think we have discussed all the main points, authorship and uh, competing interests that you should be declaring it. And then we have data manipulation, image manipulation, we discuss the case of duplicate publication, and then we discuss plagiarism and self-plagiarism both. I'm just at the end, and I think I'm out of, out of time also. So the last slide, I just this are, these are just the tools. So there are lots of plagiarism software available online. So it's, it is always advisable to you know, run your article or your chapter through these plagiarism software before submitting the final version. It will also give you some clear idea, and also sometimes it can happen unintentionally. Uh, You might not even want to do it. I mean, you you might not even be aware about it. So try to run your article through um, plagiarism software. And also, you know, all the websites, all the publishers website, obviously, all the newspaper websites, all the newspaper magazine websites, any kind of website, or even blogs, they generally have a dedicated page to rights and permissions. It, it can be um, under the name of rights and permissions. It can be under the name of licensing. It can be under the name of third party permissions, but the page will be there. So I, will, I always recommend my authors to go to those pages, go, to the, go to your, back to your source, look for those pages and read. Read how much data you can take or how much, for how much you would need to take permissions. These uh, pages generally also tell you how you can obtain permissions. It will also make you more aware as an author about the ethical issues. And you will be more aware that how much, you know. once you uh, obviously look at the say, for example, you you have read about the UN website, that how much data you can take. Now, the next time you're working on some other paper or other book, you're already aware that how much you can take. So it will only take like five to 10 minutes of your time, but it will help you in the long run. So this is um, the end of my slide. Thank you so much for listening. I hope I wasn't that fast and I look forward to questions and if there's something that you want to discuss offline. So my email ID is there, sandeep.core at springernature.com. So I welcome questions. Just give me one minute. I'll just take a sip of water and come back. <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Sandeep. I think, uh, you know, you have given us a very, uh, fair idea of, uh, you know, not only uh, what actually constitutes unethical practices uh, in publication, but also how to avoid, and I think one of the things which you uh, pointed out at the end, towards the end of your presentation, that, uh, you know, it sometimes, it can be completely unintentional, and sometimes, uh, as an author, as a researcher, we are not even aware that you are, you know, indulging in uh, unethical practices or sometimes reproducing your own work or reproducing works from others. So I think that is something which uh, which all of us have, uh, you know, uh, at some point of time, we would have certainly uh, faced some of these issues and thank, thanks a lot for, you know, clarifying a lot of doubts uh, and also raising perhaps a lot of doubts <laughs> in the minds of all of us uh, and there would be a lots of questions from um, many of us here uh, may I, uh, you know, request uh, Professor Kishishian if he has any queries or comments uh, you know, to to you come back here, sir? Thank you. Thank you very
2: much uh, for the presentation, which was first rate, as one expects from Palgrave uh, editors. Uh, earlier, uh, Professor Kumaraswamy was stating that uh, they published a lot of uh, uh, books uh, on the Middle East. My succession in Saudi Arabia was published in two thousand one by Palgrave, and and that was the beginning of a long journey. But what I would do, I have two questions actually. One is uh, there is a uh, there is a uh, there is a missing slide in your presentation, which I hope you will add for future presentations when you speak to different audiences as well, and that has to do. With the ethical relationship that publishers have with authors. <laughs> now, the, uh, the the important thing is that you know I have published fifteen books so far, and I have dealt with several editors. And uh, my royalties are very tiny. I get between seven and a half and ten percent royalty. Uh, the bulk of the money goes. Of course, I don't sell a lot of copies. You know, I am not uh, I am not a popular writer. But nevertheless, I think that there is something to be said about the kind of relationship that editors have to establish with authors. Not all of the authors are university professors that have a separate paycheck coming from the university and that writing is a bonus that is added. So I will I will really focus on that because it's a mutual relationship. And the second point, which is really a question that I have to ask you is, is that uh, Uh, the available available, uh, programs that can double check on plagiarism, that can check on all kinds of uh, uh, mechanical issues. All of these can can be checked, of course. There is no problem with that. But how do you actually evaluate as an editor the value of the contribution the value of the contribution. Let's be honest, ninety-nine percent. Well, I don't. I shouldn't say ninety-nine percent. I should say ninety percent of everything that is being published has already been published before. It's not. It doesn't take rocket science. You know, we're repeating all the time. Uh, we are all borrowing from each other. We're adding on each other's uh, ideas, and we're trying to, to take the the ball to the next to the next line, if you would like. So how do you evaluate genuine original work? And that is really very hard. You have to rely, I suppose, on a network of reviewers who are on top of their fields. But that's, I would submit, much easier said than done because all of us are bombarded with all kinds of pressures. So my question really is is, uh, on those two points. The second one, of course, is, is very dear to me because I take the reviewer responsibility very seriously. And I really spend a lot of time, not just reading the article once, but twice sometimes, sometimes three times to make sure that I am fair. So there, I've said my piece.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for the questions, sir. So um, the first one, the, uh, t- the talk about the royalty and remuneration. Um, I, I, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I do not have much to add to it, because uh, this is the uh, global model that we follow about uh, remuneration and royalties. So this is something, you know, to be very honest. We do not, as an editor, much do not have much say in it, and I totally understand your point also. So also in academia, I think it's very difficult um, to kind of, you know. Um, for the for the for the remuneration and for the royalty part, I'll be I'm really sorry I will not be edit, uh, able to add much to it because this is this is the uh, the uh, the model that we receive from the publisher. So the second point, the value point. Again, you know, um, I'm, I'm an editor, but I'm not a subject expert. So uh, um, as uh, Professor Kumara mentioned, we publish a lot in Middle East studies, but I'm not a Middle East sub, uh, subject expert. So for this case, we totally rely on our peer reviewers. So we try to match the peer, uh, the subject that we have received, the uh, proposal that we have received with the qualification, or with the affiliation with our peer, for, of our peer reviewers. So we totally rely on our peer reviewers and we, uh, so when we receive the feedback from those peer reviewers, so I myself, as I mentioned in slide also, I myself analyze the feedback, you know, how, if it is actually contributing something new to the field or if it is just a repetition. So... I generally receive quite a, I'll say, helpful feedback from those peer, peer reviewers. So in this case, I, as a publisher, I'll say we uh, we kind
0: of rely on subject experts like you. Thank you, Sandeep, uh, for clarifying these points. These are, you know, uh, especially the two points which uh, Professor mentioned. I think mm. these are perennial issues. Yes. And uh, we obviously have to... <laughs> As uh, you know, professionals in this industry, we have to kind of collectively uh, strive for improvement and for you know uh, being as equal and as fair as possible. Uh, I also have uh, we also have uh, Professor Shrabani Raj Chaudhary with us. Ma'am, uh, would you like to react, say something about this issue? i you. You you are muted. So
3: okay. Uh, thanks, Sandeep. Uh, thank you. You know, uh, listening to a publisher always creates a certain amount of anxiety and fear among people who publish. Uh, I usually go through it a lot more and. Uh, Uh, It brings to forefront uh, things that we often miss out. And thanks for pointing it out. Uh, I feel that time and again, we need to go through these uh, kind of uh, presentations because it brings to forefront the misses that we have. I had a specific question for you with respect to how do we uh, get copyright uh, issues sorted out when we want to give maps in our works? Uh, in an IR, uh, we often uh, like to give maps uh, because it uh, sort of explains things far better, faster, easier. Similarly, in economics, we obviously have this huge issue of uh, seeking uh, approval, etc. you mm. know, data. And if it's like, for me, I have issues when I have to use a company data because we have to go ahead. Mm. Uh, thing. My question is, you get one copyright once like say with from a company or an industry does it validate you till the book is in publication or does it need to be revalidated
1: okay so if i understand it correctly you want to uh, uh, reproduce a map a particular map um, in your publication right now as i mentioned um, you'll have to obtain copyright from a pub, uh, from where it is previously published mm. but the here the uh, generally, you know the kind of permission they give you. It's only for that particular work in which it is going. Uh, you're publishing it. Say, for example, you're doing a book uh, with Palgrave Macmillan with me, and you have a map. You'll have to get get permission for Palgrave Macmillan to reproduce that map in the work. So it does not extend to any other publication that you do later on. For that publication, you'll have to obtain permission again. Okay. Thanks. I hope I'm able to answer your question.
3: Yeah, yeah. Thanks on that. Uh, thank you. Okay.
0: Thank you, ma'am. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Sandeep, uh, and thanks, ma'am. Uh, we have uh, Gulshan, ma'am, also uh, with us in the audience, ma'am. If you, uh, are, if you are here, and if, would you like to react and say something uh, on the subject? Ma'am, you are muted. (coughs) Uh, Maybe uh, uh, there there might be some network issues. Uh, There's there's one question in the chat box, uh, uh, Ankita Sanyal has asked, uh, is the limit of citing another author's work differs from publishers to publishers? Or is it something universal?
1: Am I audible? Yeah. Okay. So it's not universal as such. There is nothing universal in the publishing sector. So it depends on uh, from where you are taking. For example, I'll give you an example. There is a publication house, Emerald Publishing. Lots of my authors take data from that particular one. That particular publication house. I mean, I I don't know if I tell you, this or not. That publication house um, gives um, authors to kind of you know cite whatever they want to cite from the uh, from the work that they have published with them. So for each publisher, they have their own set of uh, rules. So as I mentioned, go back to the source and read. All the websites have rights and permission issues, uh, web, uh, web pages dedicated to it. There will be lots of FAQs. So uh, 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 kind of zone, uh, narrow down the so your sources, read about them, that how much you can take. There's no
0: universal limit to it. Uh, thanks. Uh... Thanks for clarifying that point, Sandeep. If there is anybody uh, else who Um, has questions, can I ask this if you don't mind?
4: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sandeep, it it is very delightful because you know a lot of things you said uh, we don't even pay attention to, especially the self-plagiarism part, Hmm. and especially the UN documents the limits they impose on. And very often we operate on the principle that as long as I can cite the source, I can quote any number of. Come on, that these are all very useful ones. But yes. I have a question about theses because if you look at it, some of the theses, the role of the supervisor is not just supervising the work, but also rewriting the text. Okay, if you look at it, you know there are cases every single sentence had to be rewritten in mm-hmm. the final thesis. So in those cases, I'm not saying as a right, but then what normally happens is if, a, if a, that thesis is published into a book and the teacher is probably in the acknowledgement section, for all practical purposes, the kind of definition you put across, you would be the co-author. But then what happens is... Exactly. That's what I said. Okay, one second. Uh-huh. If what happens is, suppose if I edit a the thesis, if I make a corrections on a thesis of a student's work, and if I write on the same subject a separate article, I would be seen as plagiarizing the thesis work, even though the thesis contained ideas which I put across because it was a crude draft. The students hmm. did not even know. So therefore, I help improvising the draft. But when I write an article outside, It gives an impression, I am plagiarizing a student's work. How
1: do you resolve this? Okay, this is the, um, it is very complicated as, you know, uh, the whole uh, debate. So, as I mentioned also, so, um, we generally take it case to case basis. So, if a PhD um, researcher or scholar who has kind of completed his or her PhDs have they have come they come to us and say that they want to convert it into a book. So, we generally ask them whether you would like to your supervisor to be your co-author and how involved they have been with you in the in the, in the in the in the in the PhD dissertation and how involved they will be when it it is getting converted into a book. So yes, uh, there we have had cases where the supervisor is so actively involved. It's all, again, the same thing. It's almost like he or she's rewriting chapters for the uh, for the research scholar. So for that case, you know, um, the uh, supervisor obviously becomes the co-author of the work. So that is how it is resolved. And I have had books where the PhD, super, uh, PhD person has had the co- supervisor as the co-author. Now the second part, i think the second, i might not have a um, an answer for the second part because that kind of a, that's a totally different kind of an ethical issue so um, i i don't think i have an answer to that so uh, so as a you are a phd supervisor so it's the same subject and um, the person has written a whole phd and you're writing an article so i think that should get resolved between the uh, researcher and the supervisor See, if it comes to me, then I'll be looking at it case-to-case case basis. See, my, my, since you're asking a supplementary question,
4: if you put a book in which the supervisor as a co-author that raises question about the thesis, right? Because the degree if,
3: if, if the degree comes
4: if, to the uh, individual's name, but the hmm. book which comes out of the thesis gets the a co-author.
1: I know you know, you're opening your Pandora's box, right? We haven't had any issue as such um, regarding this particular one, because the, uh, uh, the basic structure, even if we talk about the technical structure, technical structure of a PhD thesis and technical structure of a book, they're totally different. I mean, you'll have to develop your manuscript to turn it into a monograph or into a book. So, I mean, in, in such cases, supervisor, they generally kind of play the play more proactive role. Um, uh, uh, with the with the with the uh, the research scholars. So yes, we haven't had any issue as such. So it has been very amicable till now.
0: Yeah, I think that that is something which again is a is, I mean, your point is quite valid, but when it comes to the academic practices itself, you know, some of these issues can be uh, uh, can be considered as unethical academic practices. Uh, rather than just, uh, you know, un- oh. un- 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 can I ask a Yes,
1: second I know the question? things
0: can become, yes, sir. You know, suppose, for instance, you know, if a person is accused of
4: plagiarism and he was vilified and criticized in the sense and he admits that he plagiarized either knowingly or unknowingly, hmm. as a publisher of a journal or a book or, a, or, or as a publishing house, would you give a second chance to that person I have, you know, the person is plagiarism is well-established. Will you give a second chance?
1: If it is, as you say, well-established, that, that, the I mean, and again, if it's a single case or if it, it has been a multiple cases, so it totally depends on the profile of the author when he or she comes to me or comes to the publisher. If there have been a multiple cases of plagiarism, then obviously no, it will be a clear no. If it has been a single case, then, you know, we can have a little bit of, um, give a benefit of doubt that it might, it could have been unintentional. But then again, it's again case-to-case basis. We'll be going back and looking at the history and what kind of plagiarism was it. So again, it's a case-to-case basis. So
4: what do you mean, you know, for instance, uh, a whole article was copied and presented in somebody's name and the original author. And subsequently, the article was withdrawn by the journal because mm. plagiarism was established. My question is, as a fellow academic, should I collaborate with that kind of person?
1: Exactly. That is the question that ethical you will have to I'm answer. Asking. Yes, exactly. That becomes a quite an ethical dilemma for you as well. So again, if say, for example, I'll take you as an example. So this for this particular um, um, researcher. So if you are collaborating, you're still ready to collaborate with this person or this uh, person A. To, for a book or for, a, for an article, then I might still you know, kind of look at the history and get it peer reviewed and, uh, and get it peer reviewed with, with more scrutiny because you are kind of uh, associated with that person. So it totally also becomes you know, a case of, um, because you are also putting your, your academic, um, I'll say integrity at risk here. So it means you have seen something there. So again, it depends on also on the relationship with the publisher that you share in this particular
0: example. Thanks. Thanks, thanks Sandeep. I think uh, for clarifying some of these points, and obviously there is always a, this overlap between academic integrity and you know publication ethics. Uh, is, if anybody else has any questions, uh, they can let me know and we can you know ca- kind of continue with the discussion. Yes, uh, Dr. Sajib Bala, if you have any questions. Yes, or sir, thank you so much
5: for giving this uh, chance. Mm-hmm because uh, I am new in this uh, field. So I am uh, hearing some of the very resourceful uh, narratives or discussion, especially thanks to Shundit that uh, he uh, informed me or mailed me that such kind of uh, discussion will be happen today, that means tomorrow, uh, this day. Anyway, uh, there is uh, many discussion about uh, plagiarism, but uh, I, have, I don't have uh, mass idea, but I have a very simple question that uh, as already Joseph said, that yeah, even we uh, re, uh, write something already uh, written, but about 90% or 10% or sometimes 50%, if you check by uh, some kind of software, uh, some kind of uh, plagiarism software, that uh, you may find this uh, blue color or something that uh, th- 10% or 15% is uh, under plagiarism. Okay. Is there any criteria, is there any, fi- you did uh, you do fixed, your uh, pelvic material fixed that this percentage is uh, uh, under this plagiarism? Suppose 10%, if you accept 10% or 15%, I don't know exactly, do you fix in your publication or not? Mm-hmm. Or, or if you fix, what percentage?
1: <laughs> so, um, I, I receive this question a lot, so there's no fixed percentage. It's all again, case to case basis. So for each book, uh, say for your book has 10 chapters, we'll be, um, running those ch- 10 chapters to plagiarism software, and then I'll be analyzing each chapter one by one. So mm-hmm. there can be a, say a 12% uh, plagiarism only, but it can be too much from a single source. Hmm. So all the 12% is from a single journal article. So that becomes a case of plagiarism, or that becomes a case of unintentional plagiarism, or maybe you need to take obtain permission from that for the journal article. So again, this there is no universal percentage about it. Or that 10% can be technical terms. So technical terms is something you cannot avoid. Uh, the plagiarism software is definitely going to pick up those plagiar, uh, those terms and show it as a plagiarism. So that's why we analyze each chapter one by one.
5: Okay. Uh, I have another uh, or second question that mm. you were discussing about uh, duplicate publication that mm. sometimes you are saying that younger authors uh, are, are do not uh, willing to wait. So sometimes not you, what is the status of my, my uh, book or what is that, is that? Okay, you are saying that uh, first time you have to review uh, for uh, two peer reviewers. Mm. Uh, then we have to wait but uh, many times we, we don't have some idea so sometimes we mail mail and, uh, sometimes you feel bother also so uh, if we first time you select two peer review but this is the final review or another second review or that another review and how many reviewer uh, then
1: okay so um, uh... In my case, in Pilgrim Pl- Pl- Macmillan case, um, so we get the proposal review first from the two peer reviewers. So uh, it depends on the what kind of feedback that we have received. If the feedback is, um, you know, suggesting that these kind of these some major revisions in the work, or say um, saying that uh, there has to be certain uh, say uh, even structural changes in the work. So it it depends on the author. So when they submit the manuscript to us. And if there have been extensive or there have been major changes in the, in the in the book, which is like different from the proposal that we had received, then it definitely goes through peer review. but generally 80 percent of our uh, full manuscripts they go to, they go through peer review process, even after proposal re, uh, peer review. I
5: am saying that the final manuscript submission, after final huh. manuscript
1: submission: Yes, it does go through peer review also.
5: Oh. Hmm. it takes
1: much time I mean one one month, two month see again um, <laughs> we generally give <laughs> we generally give um, ideal uh, for full manuscript we generally give them one month one one and a half months but you know peer reviewers are subject experts they are really busy so sometimes it does get stretched to two months or a little bit more than two months it, so that like, does happen like the first two reviews there
5: is another two or three review, or only on
1: limited no, no, for uh, propo- um full manuscript, there will be a proper uh, one or two reviews for the full manuscript. Oh. Hmm. Okay. Thank you
5: so much. for your. Experience. Thank you. Thanks. All of these slides helps us a lot. Mm. Thank you so much. Because I, I have joined in such kind of uh, discussion for the first time. And I also like to uh, give thanks for the organizer. I am not sure who are the organizers or who are the uh, who are arranging this please uh,
0: do this this kind of
1: professor kumara swami is the organizer so
0: thank you so much i'm here, I'm here. thanks so nice of- <laughs> so thanks uh, dr sajib i think you, you the sentiments you are uh, you know expressing a lot of you are actually expressing a lot of sentiments which <laughs> is common to all of us yes because another thing is today is the
5: victory of my country that means
0: <laughs> yes yes bang- yes yes oh yes so congratulations uh, there, there was there is a question from uh, Samina Ma'am. You wanted to ask something on databases,
6: if you can. Yeah, thanks, Madhusir. I'll put it across. Uh, thanks, Sandeep. That was really very useful pointers that you put across. Uh, I have a, a slight confusion when we use databases, and you rightly pointed out that they uh, they are available for uh, non-commercial use, and I have always. Very happily considering my uh, my work as non-commercial because not all pol- uh, or publishers are as generous as Paul Grave or even in Paul Grave case also, you might feel that as Professor Kishishan said that what you get at the end is just pittance. So I've always considered as, as non-commercial, but now you saying that commercial. So we can, um, so the question is, supposing as a person who works On databases and sometimes you have to work with multiple databases so it's a herculean task to you know get the permissions for all of them how do you go to i mean how do you suggest to handle this
1: i will generally um suggest my authors to handle this book by bookcases so i'm sure if you're working at one time you would you might be working on maximum of two books or uh, for or two journal articles i know i can see professor kumaraswamy laughing so sir please let me answer this first so, uh, uh, so, go by uh, book by book basis. So, um, technically, the work you are publishing with any publisher, that's a commercial entity. That's not a non-commercial entity, even if you would like it to believe it's so. So, when it comes to commercial entity, uh, there, there, there comes limits to how much data you can take from those databases. As I mentioned in the last, you should be aware as an author, try to go to those websites and reach how, uh, read sorry, how much you can take. And how much you can freely take and how much for, um, for how much you would need to take, op- obtain permissions. jalit you get permissions. I, I have like lots of authors, they write and obtain permissions and submit those permissions to us. So again, I'll say, you know, take it book by book cases. Ah, okay.
0: I think in, in the, in, especially in uh, subjects, for example, demographic studies or issues related to economic, uh, the use of database and mm. this of how much you can actually use uh, from uh, open mm. sources, or as you were saying, UN and WHO. This is always uh, mm. uh, something which which would be bothering authors. Uh, but in, in, in some other subjects, for example, uh, if you are writing in IR, where you it is not very data in, incentive or it's not a quantitative work as such, mm. sometimes this might not be that much of a problem. So it is easier to kind of take permission. So I understand from where hmm. it's coming from, and why is he asking a question? Because you know, especially when it comes to economic issues, uh, economic data yes. are very hard to find, yes. and uh, you know, you can't really generate all of this data on your own. Hmm. So certainly, it uh, creates a problem uh, for people who work with uh, statistics and data. Uh, th- if there is any, if there are no... Other... I have a small, small yes. point. Yes. You no, know, um,
4: um, Sandeep, you know, I'm going to be very uh, normal. I don't ask questions, but today I decided, you know, I can exploit your generosity. And uh, you talks about conflict of interest. And I think since we are talking about publication in a, in a broad sense of the word, we're not talking only all grave or a book publishing. <laughs> but if you look at a lot of foreign trips or sponsors, People go on a foreign trip, mostly journalists and others, on a trip sponsored by the host dam. But if you're talking about conflicts and ethics, is it necessary they should actually disclose that this trip was sponsored by the host country, I'm reporting my meetings and everything, and whatever they write, favorably or unfavorably. Is it necessary for even journalists? to make a complete disclosure that their visits have been sponsored by the host countries or even the uh, this home country, whichever is the case. Is it necessary to disclose in public?
1: Yes. yes. Not in public. Um, it, first of all, it is necessary to disclose, but not to public. Maybe, um, for say, for example, in the journalist case, they should declare uh, Um, have you seen um, these kind of articles at the end, they will have a small line mentioning that this particular um, um, trip to this particular area to write about this particular topic is, has been sponsored by this, this, this. So journalists do declare these kinds of um, funding also, even in the publishing case, you, if you have received some kind of funding for the field research Mm. that you have done specifically for this book, not for the bigger field, uh, field, uh, field research, Specifically for this particular book, we expect and we ask our authors to declare it to us, that you had received funding, even if you have only hired an RA from, uh, from that funding. So it's yes, it is necessary to declare it.
4: And, and you know, one question, you know, if you look at in the academic arena, most of them are French. Hmm. So dealing with the subject, at least you are expected to know all the other people who are writing on the field whether it's a Saudi Arabia, whether it's Israel, you know, if you don't know your peer, then you are not a scholar. At the same time, your manuscript will be reviewed by, most probably, by a friend. Okay, there is, there is no way you can avoid it because, you know, if you're writing on Saudi Arabia, there is no way you can avoid
1: Shishishya. No way. So therefore, how do you resolve this dilemma? one uh, phrase, double blind peer review. <laughs> So we, generally, uh, we all of our manuscripts go through double-blind peer review. We do not uh, reveal who the author is and we do not reveal who the reviewer is. And obviously, we need subject experts. And as you mentioned, for a particular, very specific field, there will be a limited number of subject experts. So we do a double-blind peer review. You know, the people will know. People will know by the style of the writing, by the
4: questions you're writing, and people will immediately know who the person is.
1: There is then we the trust the we integrity. Then we trust the integrity of the peer reviewer. Okay, so it's unavoidable. Yes, yes, uh, yes, technically yes. Okay, okay,
4: this is this is the dilemma one one phase. Okay, just because you know the person you will. Okay.
0: No, I think uh, your points are it's very valid and uh, in in a way it's also not avoidable. And in a way, it's also a question about the integrity of person who is reviewing. So it's not only the integrity of the authors, it's exactly. also the reviewers also, in terms of whether they you know, are uh, giving a benefit of doubt if they, if they know the person who has done the work or if they understand that who has done the work. So certainly, I mean, the question of ethics cannot be completely made devoid of the question of integrity. Uh, that is something which, which I think uh, understand from what you are trying to... Yes, it's very complex, the whole issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, all the issues are related,
1: they'll be really complex. So we generally try to take each issue um, chapter-wise or, say, book-wise. So each case-by-case basis, we generally go.
0: Yeah. Uh, so uh, if there are any, if, if there is any other question, anybody who has any, uh, any points or would like to react uh, from the audience, you know, as as actually, I, I think in the chat box, if you look at it, many people have written that how much uh, they appreciate your uh, <laughs> uh, your presentation. So this shows that uh, this this uh, you know, and and also because mostly we don't have this kind of you know discussions where uh, sometimes even if you know these kind of discussions help you refresh. Your understanding. Uh, sometimes people, you know, forget, overlook things. So I think this is something uh, which is which which we should perhaps do even more and interact with the you know editors like you. Uh, certainly, I have personally benefited some of the things which uh, you know. Sometimes you uh, work as editor and as an author simultaneously. Some of these things, you know, one faces. Uh, so certainly, uh, uh, my understanding also personally, I have uh, benefited from your talk today and uh, most of us uh, i think uh, would feel the same way uh, all of us uh, all the even the younger scholars and senior scholars also